Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. All right, so here we are, another Christmas, our third Advent, and this is the Christmas story of wonder. About, uh, oh, a couple hundred years ago now, a British poet named John Keats had a dinner party, and he invited all his poet friends. It must have been a pretty nerdy group, and Wordsworth was there, and he stood up to give a toast. And when he gave the toast, John Keats bemoaned the scientific discoveries of Isaac Newton. In fact, he literally said, he destroyed the poetry of the rainbow by reducing it to a prism. Now, John Keats is a good romantic, is a good poet, didn't love scientific advancement, not because he had a problem with science, but because he thought, you know, if you start to reduce the natural world to just being processes and molecules, then what you're doing is you're robbing it of its wonder. Because it's no longer, you know, once, once you've turned the, the rainbow into a prism, there's no pot of gold at the end of it. And there's no miracle in the, the colors or the timing or the location of it. It's just what happens when certain conditions occur in our atmosphere. And Keats thought, boy, it just really, it's okay to have scientific discovery, but are we robbing, are we hurt? Is it a chance that over time we're going to hurt ourselves with this? And Keats wasn't completely wrong. A, a modern philosopher named Charles Taylor, a Canadian, wrote a big old book, difficult to read but really good, called A Secular Age. And he says, you know what? He's on to something. Because once upon a time, humans used to be more open to the whimsical, to wonder. And he, he kind of describes it. Of, imagine you're, every person is surrounded by a bubble. And that bubble has certain, it's porous. It's got holes. Things can get into you and I as we're walking, as we're learning, as we're living. So certain ideas get to us and other ones bounce off. Think of like a, a, a chain link fence. So a chain-link fence will, refl will deflect a football, but not a golf ball. That, might, that could sneak through. A turkey won't get through, but a chicken leg could. And so in this way, he says, you know, we walk around the world, and certain things will get through, but others won't. And he said, you know, when, what happened with the scientific discovery is nothing wrong with advancement and progress. But what happens is the narrative that accompanied those progresses began to shrink the holes in that bubble around us so that we stopped letting things in that were anything other than what we see and feel. The miraculous was no longer an option. So the rainbow is now just a prism. Thunder isn't Zeus throwing thunderbolts. It's now what happens when lightning rips through the air. Nature isn't the benevolent, the work of this uh, design work of a benevolent God, but is instead the process, it's an accidental result of this random collocation of molecules. And 
and if you take it into our modern sense, it's made us quite cynical. So now you go to Disney World and the guy in the suit is just a failed actor. It's not Mickey. There's no mouse. It's just a guy. Now, of course, you know, Keats would say, of course it's a, just a prism. We understand that. But when you reduce it to just the prism, what happens to the art? What happens to the poetry? What happens when now, in our modern age, most Canadians walk around and it's not a chain-link fence, it's a wall, so that they deflect any talk of anything that isn't material. And this is very common. Think about the fact that a number of years ago, The Passion of the Christ, remember that movie came out? It's brutal. It made $612 million at the box office. But did you notice the world wasn't transformed? Millions of people heard the gospel and saw it portrayed on screen, very brutally, maybe over the top, but still. And yet the world wasn't changed. How come? Because oftentimes, a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is when people saw the man being beaten and killed on the screen, what they saw was a man being treated unjustly and brutally by humanity. What they did not see is the Son of God bearing your sins because the walls closed. All we see is a man. We don't see anything else. There's no God there. It's just a guy getting beaten unjustly, but that's all we saw. And so Keats, to an extent, is right. And when we apply that now to Christmas, what is Christmas? It's decorations, it's fun, it's presents, it's family, and it's music. And those are good things in and of themselves, but it's certainly no longer for most Canadians about God coming to earth to do something we couldn't. And so what we see in this passage is quite the opposite. And it's going to, for a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to, to open up a, cr a crack in the wall and to allow yourself to see that all those years ago, and even now, God broke into the world. He cracked through. He, he calls to you in your walls. He breaks through the wall. He tries to drag, not tries, once he's in the wall, you're finished. He drags you out of the walls, and then he frees you. And this passage shows us this, I think, entirely. And he's doing that now. He's calling you. He's breaking in on you every Christmas. He's trying to break through that wall, and he's going to drag you out, and he's going to free you. So let's walk it through this passage and see how we can see that. So first he breaks in. Now let's begin with some more cynics. H.L. Mencken was an American journalist who was very, well, he's an atheist. And he says very cynically this, faith may be defined briefly as the illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. So this is common. I mean, you can read any number of people who says faith is necessarily stupid. Because <laughs> faith is to believe in something that's not seen and it's, just, it's not real. So uh, you might as well believe in unicorns. And as, as uh, was it, uh, Dawkins says, the flying spaghetti monster. You know, believe whatever you want, you know. Um, but is that fair? You know, is it true that everyone is a Christian is a fool? And that the ancients were actually especially fools? Because they were so, you know, not sophisticated. You know, they're gullible, superstitious people in the old days. So they're just, they're just imbeciles. Is that true? Well, let's push back against that from this passage from the Gospel of Luke. First of all, one of the, one of the I, call it, I, I say it often to you, I call it chronological snobbery. We think that because we are born today and they were born back then, they're dumb, we're smart. It's just not true. It's, called, it's chronological snobbery. And we know it because of this. Luke understood the Gospel was a fantastic story, a ridiculous story to the human ears. He knew it. All the Gospel writers did. And Luke especially does it knows it because he, when he opens up the gospel, he tells people why he's doing it and how he's doing it. He says, you know, I've gone around, he's talking to his friend in Greece, Theophilus, and he says, listen, I've gone and I've gathered the eyewitness accounts as best I can, and I've put them together. And he closes that little part by saying, 
and I do this, um, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So Luke understands it's a, it's a ridiculous story. It's a fantastic story. He knows no one in the ancient world is going to believe it. They were skeptics, just like we are. So he says, so what I'm going to do is the best I can to gather everything to give as complete and, and accurate a story as I can. And he's a doctor. Luke was a doctor. He wasn't just a peasant. So he does this. But it's not just that. When you read the Gospel of Luke, and, and scholars have noticed this for a long time. Skeptics don't because they don't want to do the work, and I, I can appreciate that. But it's clear. Luke tries his best to anchor his story in things that you can touch, feel, and check up on. So he says, hey, you know, he uses names. Have you noticed he uses names? He says Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, Mary, Simeon, Anna, John the Baptist, Jesus. And he says, you know why he uses those names? To say, these are people I spoke to or I have accounts from, and you can go and talk to them anytime you want. They're alive. When Paul is standing before Agrippa and Festus in the, at the end of Acts, he says, hey, Agrippa, ask the king, you know this didn't happen in a corner. And he's telling me, this all happened in public. You could have just seen it. So Luke anchors it and says, this happened. Go talk to these people if you want. I talk to them, and you'll see their testimony. Um, and he even goes a bit further, and when he's talking about the genealogy of where Jesus' lineage came from in chapter 3, he, he acknowledges how people disagree with him. He says, Jesus, the son of Joseph, but then he adds in there, as was supposed. Because people were doubting and saying, come on, Mary's a trollop. How does she get pregnant? It's not really Joseph's son, it's a bastard son. So he understood this, and he acknowledges the disagreement. That's not something you do if you're trying to lie. You pretend like there's no objections. So here we have, in all the Gospels, not just Luke, we have as complete, as accurate, and as faithful an account as any in the ancient world. There's no more credible sources to tell you about the life of Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. There's certainly not as many copies of Homer's Iliad, and nobody doubts how Homer wrote it. There's not as many copies of Caesar's conquest of Gaul, and yet we don't doubt that he was alive and he conquered Gaul. So if evidence isn't the problem, why do people like Mencken and skeptics and myself before I became a Christian, why do we object if it's not an evidence issue? And I think the answer actually comes to us from another Canadian atheist named Thomas, um, Thomas Nagel. Here's what he says. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Okay? Now, what this tells us, and I was reminded this week hearing another pastor preach, is this. Your doubts, if you're a doubter, if you're an atheist, don't pretend like it's evidence. It's not evidence. See, atheism and doubts are not the absence of evidence. It's the presence of resistance to God. You don't want there to be a God. And this is exactly what Romans has said. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you'll agree with that. I certainly can say that I was that way. The problem was, if there was a God, I had to change my, my life, and I don't want to change my life. I, don't, I want the yoke to be taken off my neck, as, as Psalm 2 says. And so, we have this issue. And here's a bigger problem, I think, that we have, is this. It's not just that you don't want there to be a God. You don't want there to be the Christian God. Because I've had lots of discussions with skeptics and myself, and people often say, Carl, what do you mean? There's not, the world is more spiritual than ever. Come on, stop talking like it's so bad for the Christians. And I say, hold on, hold on. Neither I nor the scripture ever said that the world won't become spiritual. 
What they reject is the God of the Bible. And C.S. Lewis, in his book called Miracles, covers it well. And I won't quote all day, but it's important that we have these. When you have complex ideas, it's good that you listen to wiser people than me. And C.S. Lewis says this, Impersonal God? Well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads? Better still. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord? That's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children, playing burglars, hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? And there comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in a religion suddenly draw back. It's brilliant. Lewis. And he, see, it's one thing to say, I, I know there's something out there. I'm an agnostic. I know there's something. I know there must be somewhat. Like, something's got to set this world right because we're a mess. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing when you find that Savior. And think of this example. I, I mean, I live in an old farmhouse, and there's creeks all the time. There's probably things living in my house that I don't know about. And, um, well, I'm afraid I do know about. <laughs> More than just my kids. And um, <laughs> this is scary enough. But... Imagine now you hear a thumping at night in your house and you start to follow it and you go in search of the source of the thumping and you realize it's coming from a wall or another room and you put your ear to the wall and to see if there's something there, you knock. That's all well and good, but what happens when it knocks back? <laughs> Terrifying, right? It's one thing to think your house is haunted. It's another thing to know it's haunted. And no, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting it's haunting. Don't send me an email about ghosts. Um, <laughs> But you see, and this is what Lewis is saying. We all, we all play with religion like cats playing with a yarn ball. We talk about, we think we're sophisticated, we talk about things we don't really understand, and we say, oh, we understand where I, I know where I, where I stand in my beliefs, and I was doing this. And then, the problem is this, we think we're there, but then when the real God comes, and we start tugging on a cord, as Lewis says, reaching for God, we, we never expect him to tug back. And when he tugs back, it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? He's real? And at that moment, we pull away. And Christmas is, is God telling us, you have a God who's come looking for you. He didn't wait for you to go to him because you would never go to him. He came because you couldn't go to him. If you could have gone to him, he wouldn't have come. So that is terrifying in and of itself. So if you are a skeptic, which is, listen, I was there, I understand it, then I would say this, if you're just searching, the fact that you're here, the fact that even if you got dragged here, if you are finding yourself interested in, I want to know more about this, I'm going to push back, even if you want to only look into it to disprove it, like I did, then I'd say this, do it, but be warned that maybe because God is already starting to break through your wall and he's working on you. So God breaks in at Christmas. He, tell, he did it literally when he wrote himself into our story and he's doing it in you. But then he comes, once he's in, then the problem begins, as Lewis says, because now he's in there with you. It's one thing to see a lion on that side of the cage. It's another thing to be in the cage with the lion. And we find that when he comes in, things start to happen. You know, it's oftentimes, if you're a Christian, you'll know this. The moment you become a Christian, you expect your life to get better, and it often gets worse. It's like you're, you expect your marriage to get better, your finances to get better, your mental health to get better, whatever it is. And then you find, man, it's worse. How come? Why does it get harder and harder? Why is it that now, after becoming a Christian, I'm at more at odds with my family who didn't want me to become a Christian? Why am I at more at odds now with my job because I'm realizing I'm not honoring God in it? Why am I at more at odds with my family and myself because I realize I'm not being a dad the way I should be? And because of this, oftentimes what happens, and not just that, imagine now you start to interact. You think you've accepted this God who is all fluffy and love and, and rainbows and pussycats. And then he start, you start reading the Bible. 
And he says things like, I shall by no means acquit the guilty in Exodus. Or you read the book of Judges, which we're going to cover in the new year, and he is silent while women are being raped to death, dismembered, and sent body parts sent around the world. Where is God? You encounter that God, and you know what you do? You run, which is why so many Christians come into the faith and then leave. It's not for me. He let me down. I came in expecting something. He didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And we run. Because when he breaks in is one thing. When he starts trying to drag you out, he's going to challenge all those walls you've built around yourself about what the world is like, what you believe about gender, identity, money, work, sex, everything. He starts to rip those down. And it's difficult. So the easiest thing is to run. So how do you respond? How does Mary respond and the shepherds respond when this starts to happen? Specifically with Mary. What do you do when God challenges everything about you? Do you run? Mary, let's just try to see what can we learn from this girl. And it's interesting. How does Luke know her innermost thoughts unless he spoke to her? Right? He must have connected with her or read something from her. He's not, unless he's just making it up. But that doesn't seem to be the way he works based on what he's, what he's done. So we learn that as God breaks in on Mary, see, it's, you understand how difficult it had to be for her to think, great, I am highly favored by God. Remember, the angel comes and says, you're favored by God. So now your life is going to be very miserable. See, you're favored. Like, that must have been, if, you're favor, if I'm favored, why is he now going to make it so that the world thinks I'm a whore? Why is he, in a culture that was highly <laughs> problematic, had a lot of problems with premarital sex, why is my life going to become so much harder? And Mary doesn't say, thanks, but no thanks. Find another Mary. You must have Mary down the road. She instead stays. And the Bible tells us, Luke tells us, she treasured all the stuff she was hearing, all the stuff she was experiencing, and then she ponders it. Two words. She treasures and ponders. This is important. It helps us to understand how do you deal with that God who is alive, who tugs at the other end. So when it says that she, she treasures, it's a good word. Because you treasure what you value. So we know all the things she was hearing and seeing and experiencing was all new. See, we've read the end of the Bible, but she's learning bit by bit who this baby is. She doesn't understand all of it in an instant. We know that. And when it says that she's treasuring, it's the word sintero, which is, um, it means to preserve and to protect something. Okay? Preserve and protect. Not like a policeman. Serve and protect. Preserve. Now, when you preserve something... Specifically, she's preserving memories, thoughts, ideas that are coming to her. And she's preserving them because you and I forget things. And there's a lot of scholarship on what are memories and how do you forget, how do you remember, so I, I'm not an expert. But I do know this, it's inconclusive. And there's a couple of reasons why humans forget things. One is sometimes active. We intentionally forget because the, the memory is traumatic. I was abused and I don't want to remember that because it's triggering, so I push it aside. But more often, for most of us, we forget for, well, what, two reasons, but one simple one. One, because you don't remember. Okay? I know, it seems logical. But what it means is you think, so you learn something. In fact, you're hearing this sermon, you're going to forget it, I'm sure. But what, the reason you won't, you'll forget it is because you won't retrieve that information and recall it again. You won't recycle it. You won't replay it, rehearse it in your mind. And what we know is the reason you don't rehearse memories and why you forget them over time and they fade is because you don't value them. And there's a study done, it's a pretty cool study, where they took people and they gave them a bunch of pictures of pennies. And they said, here's a bunch of pictures, tell us which one is the real penny and which one's fake. What they found is people don't know. 
See, they, they didn't remember what, fa- what direction the queen's face turns or what the date, where the date is or is it in Roman numerals or not. They couldn't remember those specifics, so they didn't know which was real. And this is why. Because when you and I are holding a hunk of coins in our hand, we don't want, it doesn't really matter where the, the date is. All that matters is copper ones are worthless, silver ones are good. And so we remember only that which our mind thinks is necessary, right? And we forget the rest because it doesn't matter. And so Mary understands if she doesn't take special care to remember what she's being told and rehearse it and study it and think about it, she's going to forget. So she preserves it. But she doesn't just preserve it, she protects it. And protecting it because memories can't just be forgotten, they can be robbed. Your great childhood memories can be robbed by an abusive father right? There's all kinds of things that can rob us of it. And Mary, bless her, although she's presented oftentimes in the Gospels as this ideal disciple, and she's pretty good, she has a few moments where we're not so sure. In Mark chapter 3, we're told that the family of Jesus, including Mary, if you read the whole chapter, thought Jesus was crazy. They went to retrieve him because of things he was saying and doing. They thought he was out of his mind. So at that moment, even if it's just for a moment, Mary realizes okay, I know what I've been told, but what he's doing isn't consistent with what I thought he was, and it's robbing her of the truth of what she had been told, right? So she has to preserve it. She has to protect the truth because something will come and threaten to rob you of what you know. John the Baptist has the same problem. John the Baptist is literally Jesus' cousin, grows up with him, presumably, sees him and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which is a pretty accurate description, and then a few chapters later in Mark, or Matthew 11, he sends him a letter saying, are you sure you're the Messiah? Because you're not doing Messiah-like things. And so our memories can be robbed or forgotten, so Mary treasures them. And what we treasure is valuable. Now, the reason this is relevant to how she deals with this God who is untamed is because she treasures them and then she wrestles with them. She says, almost like a good law case, saying, here's what I know you like to be like. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about it. And now she ponders it. And that word ponder is so good. It's the word symbolo. But if you read, um, to understand what it means, there's a thing called the Septuagint. It's the Greek Old Testament. Okay? It was written 300, between 1 to 300 years before Mary. And in it, they use the same word that refers to Mary's pondering to describe how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, ponders Daniel's interpretations of his dreams. And it says that he held them in his mind. I think it's, let me see, I'll find my notes again here. He held those matters in his mind, meaning this. Nebuchadnezzar took all these interpretations and took that with what he knows and what he believes and who Daniel's, all these factors, he holds holds it in his mind with the intent of understanding it. That's what that word means. So when it says that Mary is symbolic, this thing, what it means is she's taking these these words and these things and all that she knows about God and the Old Testament and so much, and she's trying to make sense, but how do I make sense of a God who's supposed to love me and favors me, but I'm an outcast? How do I make sense of this? And so we have Mary being a normal human being, but not running when God tries to drag her out. Instead, she says, let me try to understand this. Let me press in to what God is doing and try to understand it as best I can. And she understood that God, the God of the Bible, is not a two-dimensional God. Every other religion you go to is going to be very two-dimensional. If you're good, you're saved. If you're bad, you're dead. If you behave, you'll be saved. 
Here's a simple way to get to God. Follow these steps and you'll be favored. It doesn't matter what else you do. If you follow these steps, you're good. But Christianity alone says you don't come to a set of precepts, a sevenfold path like in Buddhism. You don't come that way. You come to a living relationship with the living God. And because he's alive, he will push you. Just like a human... I mean, what's the difference between a make-believe wife and a real one? The make-believe wife will never tell me to stop eating the cookies on the table. But the real one will say, Carl, stop eating the cookies on the table. A real God will... Well, of course he's going to push back at you. How could he not? He's infinite. Do you really think you could always be on the right side of this God? And so this is the God. There's no... Christianity and you and I as Christians should never apologize for this. You come to a real person, a real God, not a fictional one. So you're going to be challenged. And Luke points that out. And Christians should know there's going to be times when it's going to be hard to be a Christian, where you're going to experience things, where it's going to be difficult. And so Christmas then has God breaking in on us. And then while he's in there trying to drag us out, but he has to do it by knocking down all these walls, changing everything we think and believe about the world and ourselves. But then he tries to break us free. So here's the, where I'll start to close. Why would Mary believe it? So Mary and the shepherds, listen, their life wasn't going to be better. It wasn't going to be better. I know we have sometimes people in groups, denominations, scholars, and heretics who will go out and say, come to Jesus, your life will be perfect. They won't. It's not going to be perfect ever until, you re- until you, your eyes close on this world and he comes and restores it all. It's not going to be. So the question needs to be asked, why would, let's go back to their age and then come to ours, why would somebody in the ancient world become a Christian? Why? Because to become a Christian in a world, in the ancient world, which is similar to ours, though not quite, but it's getting there, to be a Christian in ancient Rome meant you're going to be socially ostracized, okay? You're an outcast. You're going to be kicked out of your family, probably. You're, pro- you're not likely to be able to practice your trade because if, you pract- if you're a baker in Rome, you cannot be a baker in Rome unless you're part of the baker's guild. But the baker's guild offers sacrifices to the Roman gods to get favor for their industry. And if you re- refuse to participate, thank you, but you're out. You can't be. So why would you then become a Christian knowing you're going to be persecuted physically, you're going to be outcast socially from your family as well, and you're going to be professionally at risk of poverty. Why? Why would anyone have become it? Why does it move from a thousand people to 30 million people very quickly? And there's a guy named Larry Hurtado. He's a scholar in England. I think he's still alive, but he was struggling with cancer. And he wrote a book literally called Why on Earth Would Anyone Ever Become a Christian? (laughs) And brilliantly covers why people would have done it. Like, what was it about Christianity that led people to make this ridiculous choice to give up a comfortable life for a harder one. And he came up with three things. I'm going to go through them really quick, and then I'll add the fourth that he doesn't get to, but it's only because I think he's writing for a scholarly audience and not preaching. So the first thing he says is, Christianity comes and offered people eternal life. Now, you may think, big deal. It was a big deal. So here, uh, there was a tombstone of a Roman uh, writer, and it said this on it. I was not, I was, I care not. So, he's basically saying, listen, I was nothing before, then I was born, I was, and now I'm dead, who cares? There's nothing. In the ancient world, this may surprise you, only children and idiots would have ever said there's such a thing as eternal life. If you were to come and say to Plato or Socrates, I'm going to live forever, you know what they'd say? What are you, three years old? People don't live forever. 
And so Christianity comes and says, you're going to live forever. So it would have been ridiculed, but here's the most incredible thing. If I make a product, and I, that product sells off the shelves and I make millions, usually it's because when I put that product in the market, I find a ready market. There's a demand for it. If I'm selling pencils, it's because people need pencils and it does well. But when eternal life gets presented to the ancient world, says Hurtado, it's not meeting a need. Nobody wanted it. Nobody even knew they had it. But the product was so good that it awoken something in them they didn't even know they needed, that they had suppressed for so long. So that when people started realizing, you can live forever, they began to realize, maybe I do need this. And so that was incredibly appealing and radical in its time. So that's one reason. Second reason is Christianity presented the idea of a loving God, and still does, a loving God. In the ancient world, there would have been nothing more ridiculous than for, you to, for you to, somebody to say to you, you should love Zeus and Jupiter and Apollo, and they love you. No, they don't. Have you read the myths? They don't love you. They don't love you at all. And it's even more ridiculous for them to say, you should love Zeus, because this is why. Those relationships were consumer, pragmatic. When I need to get safe passage across the Mediterranean, I provide a sacrifice to Poseidon. And the reason I preside, or to Neptune if you're a Roman. And the reason I do that is because I want the scales to be tipped in my favor. And so I don't love Poseidon. I'm just trying to get him on my side. So I'm going to bribe him with some meat. That's it. And the gods themselves said, listen, I don't love these people. They're my things. I'm going to play with them. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to play tricks on them. I'm going to impregnate them. This is the way the Roman gods were. So when Christianity comes and says, no, there is a God, and he actually loves you, he's active in your life, cares for you, and he doesn't just use you, but he serves you and has come to die for you. This is incredibly comforting, but also very radical. No one else was saying this anywhere in the ancient world. So it comes as a shock, so people find it winsome. The third thing Hurtado points out is loving others. That Christianity is the only religion at the time, and in many ways still, that suggests that you has these unique ethical demands. See, again, Zeus would never have said, go and treat the poor person well. Go and lay down your life for your friends and for your enemies. Never would have been said. Not even close. Pagans, when, when Christians started serving the poor and trying to get them out of their poverty, you know what the rest of the world was saying? Why are you doing that? If the gods wanted them wealthy, he'd have made them wealthy. Keep them there. You're actually messing with the cosmic order here, Christians. Don't do it. It was Christians alone who start coming and saying, no, we're going to care for the poor. We're going to care for the sick. We're going to care for the children you don't want. And this was radical, again, because Christians didn't grow in the early church by, uh, by um, uh, imposing their will on the world, which is something we like to do, right? We want to make the laws Christian. We want to impose our will, and I, there's a place for that. But the church grew when the church said, we're not interested in our good. We're interested in your good, for God's sake. And that was incredibly winsome. And we know it was because of this. Julian was a pre uh, president, emperor of Rome. And Julian, during this time, and I have a longer quote, but I'm going to wait on that one. I'm going to say a couple short ones first. Julian realizes during plagues and downtimes that things aren't going well. The Christians, he, well, he calls them the Gal impious or the impious Galileans. He's like, they're doing better for our people than our own people are. So he starts talking about, uh, and we have his writings, he starts talking about them and saying things like their moral character, even if it's fraud, even if they're just pretending to be good, it's winning people because they're behaving good. 
He says things like their benevolence towards strangers is, uh, and the care for the grave. So the Christians would go to people's graves and clean off the stones. They did, and, and Julian doesn't like this as the, as the emperor. And at one point he writes a letter to one of his priests, and here's what he says. I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, his pagan priests, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So here we have a Roman emperor who realizes something's different about it, and of course he's angry. He doesn't like it. He rejected Christianity, famous for it. But we see even from the mouth of the enemies of the church saying something was different about these guys and we don't like it. So, now... These things are good. The features of Christianity are good and they're helped people to, to, to see where Christ, who Christ is and to convert, surely. But there's something much deeper that he doesn't get to because it's not something you can necessarily qualify, but the Apostle Paul does. In, um, let me see if I missed something here. Okay, no. In, Paul, in Philippians 3, 7 to 11, listen to what Paul says and I'm going to explain it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, what we have here, if you read the first up to verse 4 even, which I didn't want to read the whole book, Paul's saying this, listen, I was a Jew, and I was doing very well. I was being, I, my life was planned out pretty well. I had notoriety, I had money, I had everything I needed. I was living, I was being a good Jew, I was following the rules. And then he, but then you see in this passage a cost-benefit analysis, where he is saying, okay, here's the pros and the cons of being a Christian. And he says, I had everything. And now I get beaten up, I'm in jail, I'm not liked, people hate me. Um, and if you read the book of Acts, you're going to see he takes a beating continually. And somehow, in, in, in Paul's mind, and every Christian, Mary, the shepherds as well, all of us hopefully, there's a point at which we make this cost-benefit analysis. And somehow, we make the wrong decision economically. Economically, the answer would be, no, why, would you, why accept Christianity? And yet Paul says, no, he chooses the harder life. Why? What is it that causes him to do it? Why is it that despite all the nice things about Christianity, all those Christians in the ancient world accepted it? Why do two billion people still do it today? Why am I saying it's the right thing for you to do today? This is why. Paul hits on it here when he says he wants to become like him in his death. You see, the Christian distinctives are really nice. The love of God, the, the eternal life, all that. It's really good. But what melts Paul's heart is the cross. What causes him to say, I'm going to count everything as loss, is this. When he looks at how God weighs cost-benefit analysis, God sees your miserable life, your continued rejection of him, your running from him, the way you treat him and the world and your family and everything else, and rather than let you stay there, he comes for you. And he gives up everything. The eternal God of the universe thinks it was, a will, it was a, somehow a good financial transaction to give everything up for you. And when Paul sees that God treats economics that way, that that's how he weighs the scales, Paul says, I want to weigh them like that too. 
because if it wasn't for that weighing of the scales, I would be done for. So thank God, and he's melted by this. And because he is, the old measures of success get flipped on their head. Paul says, I once thought it was right to have a big job and to be loved and all this. And now he says, but it's not. I thought it was, but something has happened. And that thing that has happened is the cross. Christmas comes and tells us that God has broken in. He's, bra- he's now breaking us out, but he breaks us free by dying on the cross. And when that happens, you're free. You're going to somehow say, my family's going to be mad at me. They're not going to understand. They're going to call me crazy. Listen, happens to me every, every Christmas. Every Christmas, my family says, why can't you guys come over for dinner? Because I have a church, mom, dad, family. I can't, just can't. And they don't, like, they don't love it. They think I'm, I'm the crazy one. That's okay. Think I'm the crazy one. I no longer need their approval. I would love it, sadly, in my sinfulness, but I don't get it. And it's worth it for this. So if you're a Christian, understand this. The shepherds returned. At the end of that passage, it says, and the shepherds returned. Imagine, they just returned to their flocks. Their life and their circumstances have not changed. All they have is this message that things will be different. How then, I did, we don't know the answer to this, but how did their lives change? How did the way they shepherded change because of this truth? And that's something we need to figure out as Christians. How does the truth of what God has done for you change the way you live? And if you're a skeptic, I said this a bit yesterday, but you're always searching. If you don't accept the son that is found in the manger, make no mistake, you'll be searching for him forever. You won't stop searching. Listen, you're just going to find him not where he is. You're going to go looking for him in your work in your families, in your health, in your accomplishments, in your cleverness, in your resistance to the gospel, whatever it is, you're going to look for him there, but you won't find him. And that's the tragedy of walking out of Christmas services and of Christmas season, not accepting the son that was given for you. It's not that you're going to be rid of him. You'll never be rid of him. You'll be searching for him in the wrong places until you find him where he came, in the manger, on the cross, and now interceding for you and returning for you. It's the only way. He's come searching for you so your search can be over. It can be over even today. You don't need to search anymore. Now you can start doing what Mary did. Your search ends today, hopefully, and it starts with this, now this next process of treasuring and pondering him. And we help you with that as poorly as we do. You come to church, you listen to other people wrestle with him. You fight, you pray, you study, you serve. It's Christianity. It's Christmas. He came to break in, break out, and break us free. Let's pray.
starry night.